Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Today is one of those when it rains, it pours day. Well, actually, in just a moment, Professor Richard Wolf is going to drop by. And we're going to be talking about inflation, profiteering, and the corporate sector in America. What is really driving inflation? And also, I want to get into the media, warlike sports. Are we normalizing the war? Also, Senator Mallory McMorrow, Michigan senator, just an amazing, kick-ass piece of video. We're going to share that with you. And uh, my rant from today, from Hartman Report, America needs radical plans to save the environment, not Supreme Court sellouts. Also, Sylvia Earle is going to drop by, uh, Dr. Sylvia Earle. Everyone, she says, is inextricably connected to and utterly dependent upon the existence of the oceans. So what is the state of our seas? And is Rick Scott's new Republican plan a theocratic, racist, homophobic, autocratic giveaway? There's a lot, a lot of territory there. But I wanted to share with you Senator Mallory McMorrow. As she is a state senator from my home state of Michigan. I, I was born in and grew up in Michigan. And uh, you know, feel a deep affinity for the state. And I'm so impressed by this woman. So I just, apropos of nothing in particular, other than that this is, she, what she is doing is what I was calling for in my daily take yesterday on HartmanReport.com, where I said that Democrats are suffering from a lack of outrage and they need to start speaking up and speaking up in a way that's seriously pissed off about what Republicans are up to, particularly all these bizarre QAnon kinds of charges. And so... Here she is, Senator Mallory McMorrow of Michigan. I didn't expect to wake up yesterday to the news that the senator from the 22nd District had overnight accused me by name of grooming and sexualizing children in an email fundraising for herself. Why me? And I realized, because I am the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme. Because you can't claim that you are targeting marginalized kids in the name of, quote, parental rights if another parent is standing up to say no. So then what? 
Then you dehumanize and marginalize me. You say that I'm one of them. You say she's a groomer. She supports pedophilia. She wants children to believe that they were responsible for slavery and to feel bad about themselves because they're white. No child alive today is responsible for slavery. No one in this room is responsible for slavery. But each and every single one of us bears responsibility for writing the next chapter of history. Each and every single one of us decides what happens next and how we respond to history and the world around us. We are not responsible for the past. We also cannot change the past. We can't pretend that it didn't happen or deny people their very right to exist. People who are different are not the reason that our roads are in bad shape after decades of disinvestment or that healthcare costs are too high or that teachers are leaving the profession. I want every child in this state to feel seen, heard, and supported, not marginalized and targeted because they are not straight, white, and Christian. We cannot let hateful people tell you otherwise to scapegoat and deflect from the fact that they are not doing anything to fix the real issues that impact people's lives. And I know that hate will only win if people like me stand by and let it happen. So I want to be very clear right now. Call me whatever you want. I hope you brought in a few dollars. I hope it made you sleep good last night. I know who I am. I know what faith and service means and what it calls for in this moment. We will not let hate win. Wow. Wow. Spot on. Mallory McMorrow, the new Democratic superstar out there. And uh, thank you for that. To start out our program, though, our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books. His recent, most recent is The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Democracyatwork.info is the website, as well as rdwolf with two fs.com, and you can tweet him at profwolf with two fs at the end. Professor Wolf, we have been talking about inflation, and I have two questions to put to you. The first is, you know, the monthly figures come out for inflation, and the most recent one was less than 1% for the month, but everybody multiplied that by 12 and said, oh my God, it's over 8%. Um, when you have monthly variations throughout the course of the year, and it may well end up that the year is over 8% or it may end up that it's way below that. Number one, why do we always take these monthly numbers and, and magnify them? And number two, to what extent is the current inflation that we're experiencing, given the evidence that we're finding of uh, how corporate America is behaving right now, being driven by corporate greed as opposed to you know, oil shocks or pent-up demand or other things? Okay, uh, on the first question, there really isn't much sense. Uh, graduate students in economics are routinely told, don't get attached to any particular monthly statistic because it'll change and you can't generalize from one month. Um, and that's true. On the other hand, by watching month by month, and by the way, there are people who watch it week by week, but watching month by month does give you a sense of the direction. And people who have to make plans 
for things that won't happen for two months or six months or 12 or 18, they are often very needy of some sense of where it's going uh, in order to make decisions now that won't really pan out for several months. And so it's always guesswork. And they like to have a sense of where it's going. So with our inflation numbers, since the number has gone up every month, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a pretty good bet that we aren't yet out of the woods, not only in terms of an inflation, but an inflation that's getting worse. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Number two. Uh, and right along <clears throat> following from this, every corporation in the United States, with a few exceptions, had a couple of rough years. I mean, we know the exceptions, you know, Amazon, because it delivered packages during the crisis and so on. But most companies either suffered unemployment or suffered COVID-related problems. And so their profits for the year 2020 and the year 2021 took a hit. Some more, some less, but they took a hit. Then when it looks like in the second half of 2021 and into the present, it looks like we're coming back at least part way from how bad it was back then in terms of COVID and in terms of the unemployment and so forth that we suffered. Here's what corporations want to do. You can call them greedy if you want, but it's the logic of our system. They want to make up for what they lost. They're not interested in just getting by, you know, resuming what they did before. They want to make up for what they didn't get. And they want to do it quickly. And the quickest way to make more profits, and this is basic economics, is to jack up the price. And that's what they're doing. Of course, when they do that, they don't want the bad publicity. They don't want to be thought of as doing what they're doing, namely jacking up the price to make more profits. You know, there's an irony here, Tom. In business school, we teach young businessmen and women that every decision you make as a corporate bigwig is based on what will enhance your profitability. If profits go up, so does your career. If profits go down, uh, unfortunately, so does your career. So we tell them every decision has a goal, has a bottom line, profit. And then when they make the decision to raise prices, they go, oh my goodness, I don't want that to be understood as profiteering, which is what it is. I want it to be blamed on somebody else. Then we begin the stories, the long supply chain disruptions, whatever exactly that is. Or here's a one I really like. I have to raise my prices because all the other employers like me are doing it. And I don't want to get behind the eight ball. I have to pay them more. So I'm going to charge more. Uh, or here's another one, which is really false these days. I have to recoup what I pay in extra wages to my workers. Just a footnote, wages are rising much more slowly than prices. So the argument that the price rise is a response to the wage is really silly and, and counts on people not knowing what the numbers are. Bottom line, 
only if we were on the inside of a private capitalist enterprise, really knowing what their books tell us, only then would we have the evidence to determine whether a price increase is designed to jack up profits or has some other justification or motivation. Since these companies who are telling us why they're raising prices never let us look at their books, they're asking us to believe them when they have an immense incentive to not tell us that profit is in fact what's driving the inflation. You know, if we were to put into place a windfall profits tax, for example, which you know has been discussed in democratic circles a lot recently, Back in the 70s, you know, when a corporation reported that they had a $300 million profit this year, they also reported that to the IRS and they paid taxes on that $300 million profit. Right. Somehow corporations have, have come up with a two-book accounting system these days where they say to their stockholders, hey, we had a $30 billion profit this year and we're going to distribute part of that as dividends to you. And then they say to the IRS, oh, hey, we lost money. I'm sorry. We don't owe any taxes. So how do you even put into place a windfall profits tax if, as you said, uh, Professor Wolf, these corporations are not sharing their actual books with us? Well, the way it's been done in the past, I mean, everything you say is correct, and the only genuine, rational way would be to open the books, and so we can all see what's going on, and we can all make an agreement on what we're going to do, and there aren't these shenanigans. But as long as we allow corporations to keep the books to themselves, we are at their mercy. So what was done with excess profits tax was a simple formula, which, because it was simple, wasn't altogether fair from one company to another. But here's what was done. You take an average. Typically, you take an average profit over the previous, say, three years before the excess profits tax is to go into effect, and you say, okay, over those three years, this was the average. And if you want to be very nice, you say, if it was rising across these three years, we'll take the average and we'll increase it by the average rate of increase over those three years. And that will be considered the profit you were entitled to get this year when the excess profits tax goes into effect. But if you made more than that, if you reported that to the IRS, or if you reported it to your shareholders because you want them to think well of you as a board of directors, well, then the, the excess profit tax hits right there. And, and I should remind people, the excess profits tax uh, had its origin early in American history. It has come up repeatedly. And usually the rationale was that something was going on that was disproportionately profiting a very small number of people and costing a very large number of people a great deal, and that elemental justice would call for saying we shouldn't allow a war, which is the time that it was most often brought into the conversation. If we're making American men and women die fighting for the country wherever, then it is somehow ugly and grotesque to allow other people who are not fighting and risking their lives to make a fortune off of the same war. And so war profiteering 
became this you had this during the Second World War. Uh, war profiteering became something everybody said we should not allow, right. Right. and it seemed reasonable taxing the excess profits of the of the defense uh, sellers in order to help the families of people whose uh, people uh, had been killed or wounded uh, fighting for the country. Right. And fact, you could make a parallel argument about COVID. We've lost a million people, lives destroyed, families destroyed. Is it reasonable for billionaires to become even richer with money that could be taxed and used to compensate people who weren't blessed by the COVID disaster, uh, but were destroyed by it, uh, being compensated by part of the gains of those who made money off of the hard times. This is what FDR had to say about that. Our present emergency and a common sense of decency make it imperative that no new group of war millionaires shall come into being in this nation as a result of the struggles abroad. The American people will not relish the idea of any American citizen growing rich and fat in an emergency of blood and slaughter and human suffering. Do you I think mean, that sort of message could fly today? Yeah, I think the American people would surprise many by how strongly they would react to all of that. Yeah. Uh, polls suggest it, and decency is exactly the right word. It would be, I think, widely supported. Yeah, and in fact, he put Harry Truman in charge of rooting out the war profiteers, and, and they, went to, they went to town. Professor Richard Wolf, thanks so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you again. Same here, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, with two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. 
comfortable. Ah. Lewis in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Hey, Lewis, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I had a, an idea to kind of lower the influence of the Trump cult or the influence that Trump has on his cult. Mm-hmm. And this is basically just trying to get a hold of as much people that have left the cult as possible mm-hmm. and then interview them on the show. You know, like maybe others too, like uh, other people on the left that have shows they can do this and create the illusion that, you know, that there's just this mass exodus of people leaving a Trump cult. And the point is to get people, people in the cult to sort of be like, oh, there's a lot of people leaving the cult. There must be something to this. That's a great suggestion, Lewis. Let me just say right now to anybody who's listening, and I know that, you know, there are conservatives listening to this program. They call in from time to time. Generally, they're a little timid. You know, you will be treated nicely. But if you have left the Trump cult, we would love to hear from you if you are a refugee from the Trump cult. Did I do it right, Lewis? Uh, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's see if uh, anybody calls. I, I think we should be doing it. Thank you very much. Lisa in Newark, Delaware. Hey, Lisa, what's on your mind? I love that guy's idea. Yeah, me too. Okay, it's kind of, it's kind of, so I hope he calls back because I got a question for everyone. I'm reading the book Strongman, and one of the things that all these fascists oh, have Ruth, in common. Oh, Ruth Bandigiat's book Strongman? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes, I don't think it helps me sleep at night, but one thing all these fascists and dictators and despots have in common is they control messaging. We have let the crazy right completely hijack the flag, control messaging. They have symbols like brown coats versus red hats. We need symbols. We need messaging. And I don't know what the Democratic Party is doing. Are, are mm. they going to wait and come out with this right before the midterm? Well, hang on just a second, Lisa. Here's what's happened. Donald Trump understands branding. I mean, of, of all the things yeah. in, in life in the world that Donald Trump understands, uh, probably how to abuse women and how to brand yourself are right at the top of the list. Okay. And, and, uh, and so he took his brand and labeled it MAGA and, right. and logoized it with a red hat, the red cap, yep. and, and, and turned it into a brand that subsumed, that, that ate alive the Republican Party brand. Because the Republican Party right. brand up until that point had been kind of amorphous as well. The Democratic Party, if it was to brand itself, has to decide who it is first, right? The Trump yes. brand How that is- democracy? Well, I, I think that's a start, but I don't think that that's the kind of thing that, that right. you know, puts fire in people's bellies. And the yeah. progressives have that, you know, the progressive caucus. And I would advise the progressive caucus to do some serious, you know, to have a serious conversation with somebody like me or, or anybody who has experience, you know, running and owning advertising agencies, teaching branding, doing branding. I, I wrote a book about it called Cracking the Code back in 2010 for that election. Um, the Democrat, the progressives need to brand themselves 
And, and so that when you say a single word, when you talk about a single color, when you talk about, you know, like what? red states, you know, they should adopt blue, of course, I think. I mean, you know, why not? It's there. They should come up with a slogan, a very, very simple slogan that has an acronym associated with it. That should become a logo. They should logoize the brand and, and, you know, follow the rules of a good logo. A good logo can shrink down small enough to be recognized on a business card and can blow up large enough right. to fill a billboard. I mean, this is kind of branding 101. But the Democratic Party, the problem is right now with the party trying to brand itself outside of branding itself as Joe Biden's party, which is what they're doing by and large, right. which is not a bad thing. But, you know, it's it's also got a downside to it. Joe Biden couldn't get the Build Back Better pushed through Congress. And so that's that makes it look like a weak brand. And it's really hurting. But the, the but eventually, I think the what you will see is if the progressives could brand themselves the way that the Trump faction within the GOP branded itself, they could do what the Trump faction did, which is essentially take over the party. And I think one of the problems Dems have is we're always looking for some savior to bring the message. We need to be the message. Yeah. We can't wait for another Obama that was once in a lifetime. Yeah. But it's like, look at the message with the Ukraine and the sunflowers and the flag. But it's more than that. It's not just a symbol. They're committed to democracy and freedom in a way we don't see in this country because we let Putin get in here with disinformation, and I, I, I bet well, John McCain's rolling in his grave. Oh yeah, and you've got an entire you've got an entire Republican Party, a large Russia. chunk of it that that is just buying into that stuff. Lisa, thank you for the call. Pam in Valdosta says you disagree with me, Pam. So you go to the front of the line. What do you disagree about? Oh my God. I, I mean, I've never heard your show in my life. I just turned it on the first time in my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, you people are not, like, with it. I mean, do you not see our country going to hell right now in front of you? How so? I just paid $5.08 a gallon for diesel in Tennessee yesterday. Oh, yeah, it's just about as bad as when George today. Bush was president, isn't it? Well, I don't care about George Bush. He's just like the Democrat Party. They're all globalists. They don't like America. They're just there to get so, rich. So let me get this straight, Pam. You're upset because Saudi Arabia has refused to increase oil production and the price of oil <laughs> is too high. No. And you're blaming that no, on Joe Biden. No, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. Look at Joe Biden. He can't even walk and talk. Donald Trump time. is bragging about the fact that he got Saudi Arabia. This was one of his signal achievements was when the, when, when the price of oil was $30 a barrel. Donald Trump, you know, sent Jared over to Saudi Arabia. This and Jared is talking about this in his investment uh, company's, you know, latest pitch online. They've leaked the video he, that he went over to Saudi Arabia and got them to cut oil production by two or three million barrels a day, which drove the price of oil back up. And they have not gone back to the old production that they had when, you know, during the pandemic when there was little demand. And as a consequence of that, we've got high oil prices. This was brought to you, Pam, by Jared Kushner and Donald Trump. Okay. So why doesn't Joe Biden be a good president and look out for his people? He's trying to. He asked. He came out down. and publicly asked the Saudis to increase production. He has reached out to them three different times in public. And what we're hearing yeah, is that ever since Jared Kushner him. went over there and got $2 billion from them, that the Saudis have been telling Joe Biden to go pound sand, that this is going to work well for the Republicans because they can blame Joe Biden and the Democrats for the price of oil and the price and thus the price of 
gasoline. And the Saudis have thrown in with the Republicans who are helping on destroying America and turning us into Russia, Pam. Turning us into Russia? That would be the people making you wear masks and telling you what to do with your life. No, in Russia, they're not making you wear a mask. No, no. No, they have one of the highest death rates in COVID in the world. Listen, the, the, the mask doesn't work or Nancy Pelosi wouldn't have got COVID, don't you think? I think that masks the do masks work. work. I think that if, if they, the, the reason oh, why surgeons on, have worn masks since the 1870s is because they stopped the oh, spread of disease. It's to protect, to protect the patient from getting something from him. That's correct. they got open wounds. That's correct. That's what that's for. That's correct. That and that's, that's why if you're sick, you should wear a mask. A mask. No, nah, it doesn't help. It doesn't help. Yeah. Pam, I'm sorry we're out of time. You need to call back another time when I've got a little, you know, and I'm not up against a hard break here. I, I'd love to have a conversation with you. You're welcome anytime to call a program. It's very, you know, very rare that conservatives have the courage to actually call up and say what they think. It's kind of sad, but it's rare. Look forward to hearing from you, Pam. Is Pam right? Is the country going to hell in a handbasket? And if so, is it Joe Biden's fault? What do you think? And welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. Rick Scott's 11-point plan is so insane, it's basically a gift to Democrats. I think this is true, and I think Democrats need to be pushing this like crazy. Rick Scott's 11-point plan. This is the senator who is in charge of the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee, the RSCC. He's the, org- he's the head of the organization that raises money for and re-elect- to get reelected Republican members of the United States Senate, who can then obstruct anything that Democrats want to do to help average Americans and can promote the traditional Republican agenda of dancing to the tune of the billionaires and the big corporations. So what is Rick Scott's 11-point plan? Well, number one, he wants to turn schools into patriotism factories. Yes, you must say the Pledge of Allegiance, and you must say that God part in there. He wants to close the Department of Education. He wants to put into place a voucher program that ghettoizes public schools and finally, ultimately, probably kills public schools and routes billions of tax dollars to unregulated religious so-called educational institutions, number one. Number two, he wants to cut off any funding for universities or schools or any sort of organization that takes money from the government that has diversity training. How, oh my God, you know, people might learn how to be sensitive about people who aren't like them. Uh, number three, he wants to impose more draconian sentences for nonviolent crime and expand qualified immunity for cops so that they can, you know, kill more people and get away with it and beat people up and stuff like that. Yeah, qualified immunity, isn't that cool? Give people a gun, give them a stick, and tell them there's no consequences. That's the second point of his plan. The third, the president should have a line-item veto, which, by the way, is unconstitutional and would render Congress irrelevant. Uh, He wants to prohibit debt ceiling increases. Brilliant. In other words, the government can do nothing if we have a recession. He wants to tax poor and retired people. He wants to tax your Social Security income, no matter how low it is. And he says, socialism will be treated as a foreign combatant. Does that mean that anybody who advocates for Social Security and Medicare gets put in Guantanamo? I don't don't know, but, you know, it kind of seems that way. He wants to put into place term limits for members of Congress. Oh, brilliant. So we're going to double the power of the the lobbyists, the only permanent power in Washington, D.C. He wants to ban abortion and ban porn. 
I'm not sure there's a relationship between the two. Maybe there is in Rick Scott's twisted mind. And he wants to give tax breaks to nuclear families, in other words, man, woman, children, and allow faith-based groups to discriminate against families that are not basically straight families. He wants doctors to be banned from treating trans people. And he wants to ban trans women from sports. He wants to ban Facebook and Twitter from banning users for hate speech or spreading lies. Which, by the way, I think is a violation of the First Amendment uh, that he's advocating. He wants to stop investing federal retirement dollars with, quote, woke fund managers. In other words, he wants to stop the federal government from investing money in or any state agency. Um, and, you know, most states do invest their money, their pension funds and things like that. He wants to ban them from investing in funds that refuse to, for example, invest in fossil fuel co companies. How dare they? That's woke. And he says he wants to take climate change seriously, but not hysterically. In other words, do nothing about it. Give it some lip service. I mean, this is his opening, this is one of his opening paragraphs. The militant left now controls the entire federal government, the news media, academia, Hollywood, and most corporate boardrooms. But they want more. They are redefining America and silencing their opponents. Which, uh, you know, <laughs> leads uh, uh, Jeffrey Billman, who wrote this great piece for Orlando Weekly, to say, how much LSD does a man have to take to think of Joe Biden as the militant left? Really? <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> Scott's version, he says, of a white Christian America idealizes capitalists and idealizes people who espouse racist, misogynistic, and bigoted worldviews. This is the Republican Party's platform going into this November election, and Democrats need to be talking about it every single day. Rick Scott wants every federal program to sunset after five years unless Congress specifically acts otherwise. No more Social Security when Republicans are in charge. It will just go away. It will end. No more Medicare if Republicans can seize control of Congress and get the White House. It will go away. It will end. No more Medicaid. No more food stamps. No more basically, you know, federal aid to education. All the education department itself goes away. And Rick Scott wants to increase taxes on the bottom 60% of Americans so that we all have skin in the game, don't you know? We need to be talking about this a lot. This is the new Republican platform. In fact, it's actually the only Republican platform. There is literally no other Republican platform out there other than whatever Donald Trump wants, that's what we want. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite.
By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Picking up your phone calls, uh, Gary in Alpharetta, Georgia. Hey, Gary, what's up? Hi, Tom. Hey, Gary. How's Mr. Tom Tom Hartman? Greed has no heart, sir. Ever. And this is why I called for the, what, the thousandth time? Uh, This is a, and you're very well said, by the way, but I have something to say about greed. This is exactly people such as Kushner, Trump, they're they're not in front of me, but I'd say in front of them, you know I would, Trump and Mr. Scott of Florida, they are a perfect. They are great examples of this continued poison in our culture. Mm-hmm. Greed, greed is a poison. I got another way to describe it. Greed is a poisonous mentality that, in reality, continues to spread and attack our democracy and a decent way of life. Period. That's why it's a one of the uh, cardinal sins. So we will see, going in closing, we will see going forward if more Americans can wake up and stop riding the extra change in their pocket and, and make an effort to reject these people at the ballot box, at the, at the ballot box. Because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm starting to wonder if, if, if voting will be enough. But we certainly, we certainly have to... We certainly have to vote and get these people, their mentality, their greedy mentality out of our democracy, or there will not be a democracy, and, you, and, and we're both coming from the same page with it. Yeah, no, I, I get it, and, and you know, completely agree with you, Gary. Uh, very, very well said. Thank you. Karen in New Orleans. Hey, Karen, what's up? Oh, Tom, um, the Democrats seem to have a bipolar behavioral problem. Not only do we have the most rude, crude, and socially unacceptable human being on this in this country giving the, his uh, uh, mesmerized clan permission to be rude, crude, and socially unacceptable, but the Democrats were taught manners and courtesy and the golden rule of don't call people names if you don't want to be called names. And the Republicans have decided that PC are scarlet letters. And that's some kind of bad thing. And I love the Obamas, but Michelle's high road, low road thing did not work. Yeah. We have got to fight. Fire. When they go low, we you kick their ass. <laughs> That's my slogan. And, and I don't believe uh, two wrongs make a right. I'm just saying, yeah. grow a f- grow a pair, um, yeah. and and start fighting, and 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 don't be so damn polite. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah. But 
it, it's getting to the it's getting too close to this election, and we got to fight fire with fire. You know what's amazing though, Karen? Let it, them get away with this. Jamie Jamie Harrison, the the, oh, the head of the writing DNC, letters all the time. He, he came on my program and he said these Republicans are fascists. And yeah, I thought, oh, my God, somebody's going to pull that clip off my show and it's going to explode and he's going to end up having to apologize. Well, he said that now on multiple programs, but Good no other Democrat will use that word. And I'm it's making me crazy. I'm reading your book on Big Brother, and um, I do not use computers or cell phones, and I thank the Lord that I don't. Yes. <laughs> Karen, thank you. Thank our, you. Our Luddite caller. I appreciate it. It's great to hear from you. On the line with us is Dr. Sylvia A. Earle, the president and chairman of Mission Blue, or the National Geographic Explorer at Large, former chief scientist with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and the author of a new book, National Geographic Ocean, A Global Odyssey. The website is mission-blue.org, and you can follow Dr. Earle on Twitter at Sylvia Earle, E-A-R-L-E, or at Mission Blue. Dr. Earle, welcome to the program. Uh, what is the state of our oceans right now? What, where are they at relative to where they were, say, 100 or 200 years ago? Well, there's good news and there's bad news. For sure, we know more mm -hmm. than we did 100 years ago, or 50, or even 10 years ago. The rate of exploration, of understanding the ocean, of being able to connect the dots, if you will, with the computer technologies that now take this massive amount of new information and make it more widely available. And we have the technology to explore that didn't exist hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. Technology high in the sky, technology deep in the sea. So although we, I think, now understand the magnitude of our ignorance in a way that we didn't a hundred years ago, we, we really understand that the ocean is in trouble. We can see that we could not see before how climate and ocean are inextricably linked. Without the ocean, there would basically be no climate. <laughs> it would be rocks and water, or rocks and a little bit of water, but the ocean is where 97% of Earth's water is, and it's not just water and rocks. It's alive, and it's the living ocean that generates oxygen, captures carbon, drives the great cycles of life that shape planetary chemistry in our favor. No ocean, no life, no, yeah. no humans without the ocean. Now we know that. We did not. One of, one of the major ocean systems that affects our weather, uh, and by our, I mean literally the, the entire planets, is sometimes referred to as the Great Conveyor Belt, uh, the uh, AMORC, if I'm remembering the acronym right. I don't remember what it stands for. But, you know, the system that brings warm water from the, the South Pacific Ocean around south around the southern tip of Africa up along the, the uh, eastern coast of South America, Central America, and the United States, and then out to uh, just off the coast of England where, you know, it meets the cold water and, and settles. And there's concern that the increasing freshwater melt from Greenland in particular um, is is. Uh, interfering with the ability of that system to operate, and that if it fails, 
the, the consequences could be catastrophic, at least for human civilization. Where is, where is our understanding of that at, and, and how is that system doing these days? The whole concept of understanding the cold currents driven by the melt of polar ice, sinking the, the more dense, heavier cold water, and moving beneath the surface waters, upwelling in various places, driven by the rotation of the earth, driven by the winds, driven by differences in, in the density caused by freshwater and saltwater. Anyway, the, it took until pretty far along in the 20th century to get enough information together and to get instruments in the deep sea they could measure and and document the flow of deep sea currents. And we, the picture is far from perfect, but we know enough to know, as you have described it, the great ocean conveyor belt of cold and warm currents that shape the climate in ways that right now favor us. But if you nudge that system even a little bit, you alter the whole character of places where people dwell. Of Particularly course, Europe. <laughs> well, the, if the Gulf Stream yeah. changes direction, and it has in times past, really driven by natural causes, this one is something where we have our signature on the changes. Are, are any, any sign that those changes in, in thermohaline circulation are gonna bite us here in, you know, within recent or not recent uh, you know immediate memory in, in, in you know in time oh, 10 20 30 50 years well the evidence is clear that that circulation is changing and we need to be prepared to adapt not just for the changing currents and the and the impact that will have on temperature in Europe and elsewhere the thing is now we can see as we couldn't before, how everything connects. We once thought, when I was a, a young scientist, the phenomenon off the coast of Peru called El Nino was localized. It's only as we gathered increasing information that this cyclical changes of, of, of the currents along the west coast of South America has global impact. Right. In, it influences drought and flooding, the the difference between El Nino and La Nina, all driven by shifts in ocean currents. And that seems like just a physical phenomenon, but we're now at a stage where the physicists and the chemists and the biologists are really mixing it up and understanding that this is a living planet, that the carbon cycle, for example, is driven, well, it's physics and chemistry, but it's the chemistry of life. So we understand that photosynthesis requires a little bit of carbon dioxide to power photosynthesis. Carbon dioxide plus water yields oxygen and sugar, food, mm -hmm. that then goes through the whole food chain of carbohydrates and fats and proteins Nitrogen is involved with proteins, phosphorus, this whole chemistry of life. But until right about now, being able to synthesize 
the, the chemistry, the physics, the biology into understanding more about how the living planet functions and what we have done to the nature of nature, clear-cutting forests, converting the wild places throughout most of the continents, Antarctica accepted, <laughs> and now understanding we've done it to the ocean too. We've clear-cut the ocean. Right. 90% of many of the big fish are gone. And you think, okay, trees are carbon-based units. They hold the carbon. They sequester carbon in the soil. And when you burn a forest, that carbon is released. When you clear-cut a forest, that carbon is released. When you clear-cut the ocean, you take out hundreds of millions of tons of krill, of sharks, of tunas, of swordfish, of all the creatures that we call seafood and sea products. You know, we grind up fish for fertilizer. We capture the small fish by the hundred millions of tons, grind it up, and we feed it to chickens and cows and pigs. Hmm. We don't even think about that as what we've taken from the sea. But right. when, it, when it gets mushed up, who would recognize that we're talking about gazillions of no, I, I, I get it. We're closing in on a break here. The last question I was very curious to get your take on. You know, we're learning that microplastics in our environment are, are a danger, that many of these plastics contain and, and release over periods of time, in particular hormone bending chemicals and other chemicals that can cause cancers and things. And there can be as many as 90,000 microplastic particles in a single bottle of bottled water. You know, people are starting to get a little nervous about that kind of stuff. But I understand that one of the major sources of microplastics in our food chain is from fish and that the fish are getting them because the oceans are filled with microplastics. What is the status of our oceans relative to plastics in general and microplastics specifically? Well, 100 years ago, it wasn't a problem because these synthetic materials did not exist. Right. On one hand, they serve us well and you know, for medical, for scientific, for everyday uses, packaging. But now that we know the nature of the problem, we really have to do a concerted effort to try to extract what we can of what's already been put in the ocean and do our utmost not to let more escape and to think about different ways to package, different ways to substitute for the, the, the synthetic materials that really don't go away. They're around for not just decades or centuries, but for thousands of years. And once they're in the ocean, they're hard to pull back when they get down to these tiny little pieces. And not just just uh, micro, but nanoplastics hmm. that are tiny enough to appear in our bloodstream. They're in the air, <laughs> the beer, or the water, or the soda that you drink. They're there. Hmm. And, and it's a fact. Yeah. But at least knowing that we've got a problem helps. helps yeah, it seems, it seems like a starting point. Dr. Sylvia Earle, the new book is The National Geographic Ocean, a global odyssey. Mission-blue.org is the website. Sylvia Earle with an E at the end on Twitter and Mission Blue on Twitter. Dr. Earle, thank you so much for the great work you're doing and for dropping by to talk with us. Oh, it's great to be part of the action. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Back at you.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So my op-ed today over at HartmanReport.com is titled, America Needs Radical Plans to Save the Environment, Not Supreme Court Secret Sellouts. And I started out telling the story of Brazil. Uh, oddly enough, you know, Lula, the, the former president of Brazil, who is trying to make a comeback right now, you know, running against Bolsonaro, he just came out and basically endorsed vegetarianism. <laughs> he tweeted, I'm not just talking about people going back to eating barbecue, but also vegetarian people who don't eat meat, being able to get a good organic salad and encouraging healthier agriculture in our country. Uh, the reason he's saying this is because the rainforest, the Amazon rainforest, is being absolutely destroyed, and one of the main reasons is, is cattle, animal agriculture. So, you know, Brazil and the, and the Brazil Supreme Court now has what they call the green docket. They're starting to take on some of these green cases, rights of nature cases, rights of the Amazon uh, forest, uh, jungle, things like that. Meanwhile, here in the United States, we've got five reactionary Republican appointees on the U.S. Supreme Court who just restored a rule that Donald Trump had put into place in 2020 that said that mining and drilling operations could pour more of their toxic poisons, including arsenic and, mer and mercury, which are just, you know, arsenic causes cancer and neurological damage, and, and mercury causes severe neurological damage in children, both of these substances, as well as selenium and other compounds from, from uh, fracking and drilling and stuff, that they could pour more of this stuff into our water, in, into our waterways, into our rivers and streams so that, you know, kids living in cities downstream will get more poison in their tap water. So the, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court just did this. Now, they didn't do it with any public arguments. They didn't hear a single argument. They did this through the so-called shadow docket, where they, they basically meet in secret, if they even meet, in this case, it looks like five conservatives got together and said, okay, that's it. And, and, and uh, you know, yeah, let's, let's let, you know, industry poison America more effectively. I mean, it's really pretty breathtaking, particularly when you consider that of those five conservatives who did this, at least two of them probably should have recused themselves. Barrett, her father was an oil industry lawyer his, virtually his entire career. And Gorsuch's mother, his, Neil Gorsuch's mother, Ann Gorsuch, uh, Ronald Reagan put her in charge of the Environmental Protection Agency where she tried to gut that agency. And this Supreme Court decision is about gutting the EPA. She tried to gut the EPA and ended up having to resign in disgrace. Not to mention, you know, Clarence Thomas, you know, clearly in the pockets of the whole Coke network, you know, which is affiliated with the fossil fuel industry and whatnot. I mean, this is, this is, pretty astonishing. And this, by the way, was a rule that was put into place by Andrew Wheeler, the coal and chemical industry lobbyist that Donald Trump put in charge of the Environmental Protection Agency. Andrew Wheeler also replaced the Clean Power Plan, 
that uh, and thus we have a weaker rule on on air pollution. He gutted core protection for the Clear Clean Water Act. He rolled back the mercury and air toxic standards. He eliminated the EPA's Office of the Science Advisor. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, if Brazil can at least start, and you know, Brazil is no environmental angel here, but if they can have at least a conversation about starting to clean up their environment in a way that will affect climate change. Can't we have a Supreme Court that will actually listen to debates on these issues rather than just knee-jerk supporting the, the uh, fossil fuel industry? You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. And perhaps most importantly, why is it that when this happened and to this day, the news industry in the United States, the media have largely ignored this? Tom Harmon here with you. By the way, I should uh, point out that this uh, judge who uh, ended the mask mandate on the airlines, uh, her one claim to fame in her career is that she was a clerk for Clarence Thomas. That kind of tells you everything. Paul in Lisbon, Connecticut. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I worked with Brett Kavanaugh in 1984 in New Haven, Connecticut when really? he was college. Yeah. When he was what? When he was a sophomore. A sophomore in college? Yeah, Yale. Uh-huh. Tell me about it. And what, it, what happened was, this is what he told us. Well, what was going on, there was a food service strike from the union workers at Yale, and he wasn't able to cross the picket line to practice. So um, Yale bought him a laborer's book um, to keep him out of trouble, because he said they were after him. And um, so wait a minute, what does it mean that Yale bought him a laborer's book and why, what was he trying to practice that he couldn't cross the picket line for? He was a third string um, quarterback on the Yale football team. Ah, okay. And, and, he, and he couldn't cross the picket line because? I don't know. They wouldn't let him cross the picket line, oh, okay. so they had the summer off from practicing. Right. This was oh, the I summer. See. Oh, so the team kind of made that decision. Yeah, because what happened was, I mean, it was only practice anyway. Right. It wasn't the season. Yeah, I get that. So, and they were at the other field house, not the big field house, the little field house. But, but these guys were picketing everywhere. So long story short, um, he, he, he used to wear his jersey in, and I told him, uh, you ain't no uh, Joe Montana, buddy. Mm -hmm. And um, he, he was... He just stood there, and then he staggered off. This guy was drunk every single day on the job, and uh, the boss was wondering where he got the booze from. Really? What, he, hang on just a second. What was the job? Oh, we were pipelines. I'm a pipeliner, and uh -huh. we were installing gas mains And he was New Haven. And he was doing that, what, as a part-time job? No, it was a full-time job during the summer. He was, oh, during the uh, summer. Okay. Yeah, he got a book out of the laborers local at Yale Bottom. And, you know, I'll tell ah. you what, people, people will kill for a laborers local book because even at that time they were making $16 an oh, hour. Oh, by book, you meant he, he, they booked him into a job. They, they got him a job uh, laying pipeline with you, Paul, in, in Connecticut during the summer while he was going to college because he couldn't practice football because of the strike, and he was drunk every day on the job? Is that the bottom line of what you're saying? Yes, and what he told us was that they bought him this book because he was getting in trouble at school. Wow. And the New Haven, and the boss asked him, why are, you, why are you hiding in the truck all day? 
And he said, well, the New Haven police are after me for rape, but I didn't do it, he said. Really? Yeah. So the scenario was Yale knew he was no good. And because he comes from, you know, a rich family, they got him this book to keep him out of trouble. Got him this and job, they, yeah. The Yale police knew who he was, but were told to back off. But the New Haven police were after him. So he would hide out in the truck all day and not do anything, basically. Oh, and he only made it three weeks. He, he got laid off for, um, believe it or not, not for drinking. Because the, I said, why don't you fire him for drinking? And the boss said, well, I'd have to fire the whole crew. Because back then we all drank beer and stuff. So. Uh but he got laid off for lost time. He was huh. missing days, too many days. Because he, he was drinking so much. That's amazing. Okay, Garrett, Paul, thanks for the story. I, you know, I can't vet this story. I don't know Paul, but I'm, I'm trusting you, Paul. I'm, well, let me tell you what. I, it can be vetted. I wrote a two-page letter to the FBI before he got certified, uh -huh. and I never heard a word from him. And I also wrote a letter to uh, White House, not the White House, but... What is he, Senator Whitehouse? Sheldon, yeah, Senator Sheldon. And um, I never heard a thing back from anybody. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, Paul, thank you. Thank you for the, the information. That's amazing. So Putin just fired a, a long-range missile or test-fired a long-range missile in Russia, you know, one that could, like, say, reach the United States. And he says, uh, this is so that people who would threaten our country should think twice. Right, like we didn't know that he had long-range missiles. I, this is like increasingly reminding me of the, you know, the guys who like walk around flexing their muscles, you know, like, hey, look at me. I got, you know, it's, I, it's, I'm reminded of the old saying that um, dogs that bite, uh, dogs that bark generally don't bite. Dogs that don't bark are the ones that you have to worry about. Um, there's an awful lot of barking going on here. Not that we don't have to worry about it, but anyhow. Let's pick up your phone calls. Tony in St. Petersburg, Florida. Hey, Tony, what's on your mind today? Yes, I am. I'm 81 years old. I'm retired to Florida from the West Coast. Basically, 15 years ago for a lower cost of living. I want to warn people that Governor DeSantis is quite likely to be the next president of the United States. I agree. And if you... If you look at what he's done, it uh, follows Putin. Uh, he's banned books. He's uh, gone after a marginalized group, particularly trans kids and gay people. He's enacted a law, and when I say enacted, he has a legislature which is totally, you know, on its knees in front of him because it's a uh, heavily GOP, right-wing GOP. Right. The Democrats nationally need to recognize this. If, if the Republicans win the House and the Senate, which is quite likely this fall, then Ron DeSantis will have a, everything that he's enacted will be, uh, you know, approved by. Right, the and he Court. and he's the guy who's going to take the mantle of Trump. Number one, and number two, now you've got state after state where they have changed their laws. So that even if the people vote for a Democrat in the fall for president of the United States, those states will still be able to say, oh, no, we're going to make DeSantis the president. 
in fact, my op-ed today, the piece that I published today that I shared with you earlier about, you know, the Brazil Supreme Court versus the U.S. and all this kind of stuff, the last sentence of it is, you know, if we deal with this problem, then we can attend to the next big problem that we're facing, which is the coming fascist administration of Ron DeSantis. And I, I am completely with you, Tony, and I think Americans really, really need to pay attention to this. Thank you very much for the call. Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Gerald and Halbert, Ron Hartenbaugh, Chase Spross, and the folks who run our uh, chat room over on YouTube. Thank you to you all. And thank you for listening and watching our program. Get out there, get active, tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.